Section 20 of Secrets of the Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Secrets of the Woods by William J. Long. Section 20 Snowbound. Part 1. March is a weary month for the wood folk. One who follows them then has it borne in upon him continually that life is a struggle. A keen, hard, hunger-driven struggle to find enough to keep a-going and sleep warm till the tardy sun comes north again with his rich living. The fall abundance of stored food has all been eaten, except in out-of-the-way corners that one stumbles upon in a long day's wandering. The game also is wary and hard to find from being constantly hunted by eager enemies. It is then that the sparrow falleth. You find him on the snow, a wind-blown feather guiding your eye to the open where he fell in mid-flight, or under the tree, which shows that he lost his grip in the night. His empty crop tells the whole pitiful story, and why you find him there, cold and dead, his toes curled up, and his body feather-light. You would find more, but for the fact that hunger-pointed eyes are keener than yours and earlier abroad, and that crow and jay and mink and wildcat have greater interest than you in finding where the sparrow fell. It is then also that the owl, who hunts the sparrow of nights, grows so light from scant feeding that he cannot fly against the wind. If he would go back to his starting point, while the march winds are out, he must needs come down close to the ground and yee towards his objective, making leeway like an old boat without ballast or centerboard. The grouse have taken to bud-eating from necessity, birch buds mostly, with occasional trips to the orchards for variety. They live much now in the trees, which they dislike, but with a score of hungry enemies prowling for them day and night. What can a poor grouse do? When a belated snow falls, you follow their particular enemy, the fox, where he wanders, wanders, wanders on his night's hunting. Across the meadow, to dine on the remembrance of field mice, alas, safe now under the crust. Along the brook, where he once caught frogs. Through the thicket, where the grouse were hatched. Past the bullbriar tangle, where the covey of quail once rested nightly. Into the farmyard, where the dog is loose and the chickens are safe under lock and key instead of roosting in trees. Across the highway and through the swamp and into the big, bare, empty woods. Tell in the sad gray morning light, he digs under the wild apple tree and sits down on the snow to eat a frozen apple, lest his stomach cry too loudly while he sleeps the day away and tries to forget that he is hungry. Everywhere it is the same story, hard times and poor hunting. Even the chickadees are hard-pressed to keep up appearances and have their sweet love note ready at the first smell of spring in the air. This was the lesson that the great woods whispered sadly when a few idle March days found me gliding on snowshoes over the old familiar ground. Wild geese had honked an invitation from the south shore, but one can never study a wild goose, 
the only satisfaction is to see him swing in on broad wings over the decoys. One glorious moment, ere the gun speaks and the dog jumps, and everything is spoiled. So I left gun and rifle behind, and went off to the woods of happy memories to see how my deer were faring. The wonder of the snow was gone. There was left only its cold bitterness, and a vague sense that it ought no longer to cumber the ground, but would better go away as soon as possible, and spare the wood folk any more suffering. The litter of a score of storms covered its soiled, rough surface. Every shred of bark had left its dark stain where the decaying sap had melted and spread in the midday sun. The hard crust, which made such excellent running for my snowshoes, seemed bitterly cruel when I thought of the starving wild things and of the abundance of food on the brown earth, just four feet below their hungry bills and noses. The winter had been unusually severe. Reports had come to me from the north woods of deep snows, and of deer dying of starvation and cold in their yards. I confess that I was anxious as I hurried along. Now that the hunt was over, and the deer had won, they belonged to me more than ever more, even than if the stuffed head of the buck looked down on my hull, instead of resting proudly over his own strong shoulders. My snowshoes clicked a rapid march through the sad gray woods, while the march wind thrummed an accompaniment high up among the bare branches, and the ground spruce nodded briskly, beating time with their green tips, as if glad of any sound or music that would break the chill silence until the birds came back. Here and there the snow told stories. Gay stories, tragic stories, sad, wandering, patient stories of the little woods people, which the frost had hardened into crust, as if nature would keep their memorials forever, like the records on the sun-hardened bricks of Babylon. But would the deer live? Would the big buck's cunning provide a yard large enough for wide wandering, with plenty of browse along the pass to carry his flock safely through the winter's hunger? That was a story, waiting somewhere ahead, which made me hurry away from the foot-written records that otherwise would have kept me busy for hours. Crossbills called welcome to me high overhead, Nothing can starve them out. A red squirrel rushed headlong out of his hollow tree at the first click of my snowshoes. Nothing can check his curiosity or his scolding, except his wife, whom he likes, and the weasel, whom he is mortally afraid of. Chickadees followed me shyly with their blandishments. Tiskadee, with that gentle upslide of questioning, is the spring really coming? Are, are you a harbinger? But the snowshoes clicked on, away from the sweet blarney, leaving behind the little flatterers who were honestly glad to see me in the woods again, and who would fain have delayed me. Other questions, stern ones, were calling ahead. Would the cur dogs find the yard and exterminate the innocents? Would old Wally? But no. Wally had the rheumatus, and was out of the running. Ill wind blew the deer good that time else he would long ago have run them down on snowshoes and cut their throats, as if they were indeed his tarnal sheep that had run wild in the woods. At the southern end of a great hardwood ridge, I found the first path of their yard. It was half filled with snow, unused since the last two storms. A glance on either side, where everything eatable within reach of a deer's neck had long ago been cropped close, showed plainly why the path was abandoned. 
I followed it a short distance before running into another path, and another, then into a great tangle of deerways spreading out crisscross over the eastern and southern slopes of the ridge. In some of the paths were fresh deer tracks and the signs of recent feeding. My heart jumped at the sight of one great hoof mark. I had measured it and studied it too often to fail to recognize its owner. There was browse here still to be had for the cropping. I began to be hopeful for my little flock, and to feel a higher regard for their leader, who could plan a yard, it seemed, as well as a flight, and who could not be deceived by early abundance into outlining a small yard, forgetting the late snows and the spring hunger. I was stooping to examine the more recent signs, when a sharp snort made me raise my head quickly. In the path before me stood a doe, all a-quiver, her feet still braced from the suddenness with which she had stopped at sight of an unknown object blocking the path ahead. Behind her, two other deer checked themselves and stood like statues, unable to see, but obeying their leader promptly. All three were frightened and excited, not simply curious, as they would have been had they found me in their path unexpectedly. The widespread nostrils and heaving sides showed that they had been running hard. Those in the rear, I could see them over the top of the scrub spruce behind which I crouched in the path, said in every muscle, Go on, no matter what it is, the danger behind is worse. Go on, go on, insistence was in the air. The doe felt it and bounded aside. The crust had softened in the sun, and she had plunged through it when she struck, crunch, crunch, up to her sides at every jump. The others followed, just swinging their heads for a look and a sniff at me, springing from hole to hole in the snow, and making but a single track. A dozen jumps and they struck another path and turned into it, running as before down the ridge. In the swift glimpses they gave me, I noticed with satisfaction that, though thin and a bit ragged in appearance, they were by no means starved. The veteran leader had provided well for his little family. I followed their back track up the ridge for perhaps half a mile, when another track made me turn aside. Two days before, a single deer had been driven out of the yard at a point where three paths met. She had been running down the ridge when something in front met her and drove her headlong out of her course. The soft edges of the path were cut and torn by suspicious claw marks. I followed her flight anxiously, finding here and there where the snow had been softest, dog tracks, big and little. The deer was tired from long running, apparently. The deep holes in the snow where she had broken through the crust were not half the regular distance apart. A little way from the path I found her, cold and stiff, her throat horribly toned by the pack which had run her to death. Her hind feet were still doubled under her, just as she had landed from her last despairing jump, when the tired muscles could do no more, and she sank down without a struggle to let the dogs do their cruel work. I had barely read all this, and had not yet finished measuring the largest tracks to see if it were her old enemy, that, as dogs frequently do, had gathered a pirate band about him and led them forth to the slaughter of the innocents. When a faraway cry came stealing down through the gray woods, Hark! the eager yelp of curs, and the leading hoot of a hound. I whipped out my knife to cut a club, and was off for the sounds on a galloping run, which is the swiftest possible gait on snowshoes. End of section 20